0: Wait, let's, let's, let's just
1: sit down. Look, I got a gun out there in my purse. And up to now, I've been forgiving and forgetting because of the way I was brought up. But I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Don't think I can not do it. Let me take you back to 80s feminism with my guest today, Maria Angelico. We're going to talk about her favourite movie, 9 to 5, with the dream team that is Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. But before we get there, you won't believe Maria's own story. I wanted to start with the story of her mum, who was an 80s feminist and who sadly passed away when Maria was 21. She was diagnosed with cancer and within a year, Maria and her sisters were left to figure out the world without her there. Luckily, it seems she was such a force of nature in her sky-high heels and leather pants that she still inspires her girls now. Just after losing her mum, Maria found her way to acting school, where she was able to work through some of her grief and ultimately find acting, her talent, and herself. This led Maria to a very magic meeting with destiny. Maria wrote, produced, and starred in a small web series called Movement, and in a turn of fate, the indomitable Imogen Banks saw it. Now, Imogen is behind some of our most loved Australian female-led shows, including Offspring, The Beautiful Lie, Paper Giants, and Puberty Blues. In Imogen's shows, the lead character's inner monologue often feels so familiar, and for me, like Nina in Offspring, reflects the way my inner voice works Kind of like a running commentary of a football match, except it's not football, it's my fears and neuroses instead. Being cast as the lead in a show created by Imogen Banks is kind of like winning the acting lottery for women in Australia. And well, I bet you can guess what happens next. When Imogen saw movement, she immediately started working on the hit TV show Sisters, which is now on Netflix, with Maria Angelico in mind as the lead. And I completely get why. Watching her on screen is like seeing someone who deals with the same crap you do and who feels like a person you want to have brunch with and nitpick all your flaws while also deep diving into your latest reality TV obsession and your problematic relationship with feminism. So you'd recognize Maria from Sisters, but also from other shows like Stateless on the ABC. She's a brilliant actor. Also, turns out, a really great person. We talked over Zoom while we were in lockdown, and though we had a few tech issues, I couldn't not share our episode. I hope you love it as much as I did. I wanted to start with Maria talking more about her wonderful mum, who, like Dolly Parton and really, like I think all of us, was a feminist, but also full of contradictions. Here she is, Maria.
0: I think even without my mum's views on feminism, it would just felt like a very... I'm not saying feminism is a who needs a man, <laughs> but there was an element where it was just women can do anything. And yeah, so I think there was definitely just that element. And my mom, she did everything. So it was definitely just how I grew up. And I didn't even know otherwise, really. But then on top of that, my mother was very, she had some pretty strong views, even though they were quite contrasting. She was, I guess I'd say, like a Dolly Parton kind of feminist. She was all about equality and really, you know, (laughs) unity with women and and strength in numbers. And also she was a, you know, a survivor of quite an abusive relationship. So she'd had her reasons as well to be quite passionate about a lot of women's issues. not saying that you have to go through hell to, to have reasons to be passionate about feminism. She was really passionate in that way. But then on the flip side... She was, I guess, uh, contradicting. She was a product of the 80s and I I think she was very that kind of lipstick powerful. I remember her doing (laughs) canteen duty in like stilettos and leather pants and like she'd have a crazy perm and, you know, she was very glamorous, my mother. So I think it contradicted other ideas of feminism that I heard in, in the media and that I think around the time when I was little in the 90s definitely Feminist didn't look like my mother, and and it, it was confusing. I think there was a lot more stigma around that word and around being, yeah, a strong woman. So I, I was definitely raised in a way that I knew women was strong, and and we could really fend for ourselves, and equality was really important. But there was kind of this eighties sexy revenge. Kind of a filter over the feminism, so I don't know if that makes any sense. But it was stop me if I'm ranting too much. But a lot of the movies and the the media that we were raised on was like so. Um, my mum's favorite movie was this Bollywood film. She loved Bollywood films, but it was this film about this woman who her husband fed her to crocodiles, <laughs> and she survived and got all this wild plastic surgery and became a glamorous model and like got revenge and similar with I mean there's a lot of those kind of movies where I just I think to be a powerful woman I thought you had to be really um, sexy and cool and glamorous and vengeful. Yeah. It was like a kind of a little bit man hating, which I was like, that's, so I don't know if that's, that's not, that's not a feminist. So I think mean, I had a, it was a bit confusing growing up and look, I'm still figuring it out, but um, mm.
1: <laughs> oh, aren't we all figuring it out? Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you what home was like for you as a kid day to day.
0: Look, it was it was a really creative household. Um, my mother passed away when I was twenty one, so um, that's why I'm talking about her in past tense, just to clarify. But um,
1: I'm so sorry that she passed away. Did she pass away suddenly? Yeah, yeah, she got
0: she had a cancer, and it was just quite a quick, just over a year of her diagnosis. It's it's crappy. It's a shitty thing that you know you don't wish upon anybody. But. Um, Me and my sisters very much live with her very present in our lives, which is really nice. We're all quite close. We all live in Melbourne.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My dad passed away about five years ago and I know it's um, you feel lucky for the time that you had with them and sometimes it's great and then it can hit you in different moments all of a sudden you can be right back to where you were, you know. Were you studying acting when she was alive? No, I was... 21 when she passed away.
0: acting. also I'm so sorry about your father. I that was that's awful. Oh, thanks. Awful. Thank you. Um, no, I I'd, I'd been working as an actor very casually. Like I, I got my first TV job when I was 13, and I'd done a few jobs throughout high school, but I never took it seriously. I was too busy trying to be cool and all of that stuff. And yeah, it was actually after my mum died that I realised life's short and I kind of, it was a bit of a kick up the butt, so that's when I studied. I studied a pretty, I enrolled while she was dying and started staying months after she passed away. And I think in a way it kind of saved me. I mean, I did a lot of crying at drama school, but I think that's what drama school's kind of for. So in a way it was quite cathartic and it it was really good having like something to channel all of my uh, raw emotion into. And it was just good having structure and yeah, all all of that. So, um, and I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it kind of helped me process a lot of stuff as well. Yeah. So I studied right after she passed away.
1: Wow. Is that 16th Street? Is that where you did your, your acting or where did you study?
0: Yeah, that was where I did the most of my training and yeah, I've also done some studying overseas and, but that was, I did, it was a two year course, uh, part-time right? and it was the very first I think it was their first or second year. So they were a very new school. And I think it's a different school now that I've graduated. I'm sure it's evolved, but it was, it was pretty cool. Like they were doing lots of, I think they were trying out lots of different things. So yeah, it was quite exciting.
1: Yeah. I saw a video with you talking about your experience there and how you were working out yourself and your emotion during that time. And I love what you said about you decided to take yourself seriously. (laughs) Why do you think that, I feel like sometimes women don't take ourselves as seriously at first, particularly in creative fields? Yeah, that's
0: a good question. I think there's an element of keeping diminishing our own power or or keeping it light like even you know that classic thing of sending the email and then you read it before you send it and you've put in like I just wanted to ask you or rather than just asking the question and all of that fluff that we do to kind of dilute our power and I guess it's to be liked because of that belief that you know that we have to be likable that's more important than being good at what you do. (laughs) So I think there's definitely, um, you know, an element of that. And particularly with being an actor and a performer and the whole trope of the female character needing to be likable is more important than anything. So I think there's that. And also the self-deprecation, I think, yeah, I think it it is that it's, it's the likability, but also just not wanting to intimidate people, mm. which is just such a silly fear to have because you can't control how people react to you. But, yeah, growing up, I definitely, I, I you know, I'm not an amazing genius, but, you know, I was intelligent and, and funny and, I mean, I, I hope I still am.
1: <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I was... No, you absolutely are and creative and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like I, I took
0: a lot of, I think, In a naive way, um, just the way we were raised, my mother was very much quite eccentric, just the way she saw the world and and behaved. And so I think just as a byproduct of that, I, I grew up like that. You know, I didn't think of I would dress however I wanted. I would, my music taste, all of those things. And then I quickly learned in school, I think it definitely would have been that that can be intimidating to kind of do your own thing rather than do what everyone else is doing. And so it was in my nature to do that still, but I kind of was at war with myself a bit. And so the way that I thought I'd get around with not fitting in fully was if I make myself a bit of a joke around it. Like I I kind of laugh at my differences rather than conforming. I'll still not conform, but I'll, I'll kind of make myself a clown in that way. I don't know. I've always loved clowns though. I'm really digressing. Sorry, but
1: I've, I do. I've always really. <laughs> no, it. you know what?
0: I've always
1: identified oh, with a clown. It's the curly hair <laughs> I know, and you know, I... all that stuff. <laughs> see, I am freaked out by clowns. I can't, no, I can't do it. I'm terrified of clowns, but I do see, I completely relate to you, Maria, in that way. I remember that and I still do it now. And I think as you get older, it becomes more difficult not to, I mean, you kind of want to unpick that in yourself, but it's it's difficult, particularly when you're younger. And I guess I I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out in your 30s who you are and standing in your own self. But I know as a teenager doing that, I learning, remembering, kind of realizing. I'm going to make fun of myself before anyone else can. Exactly, because I'm different and I'm loud and I have opinions, and people don't like that. And so, the best way to do that is to be funny, to make yeah. fun of yourself, and then then it's like you're less intimidating or something. Yeah. But what that actually does is diminish you.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know exactly. Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly it, and it's that that kind of. That punching first, or or, or um, making the joke first before someone else does, and also the assumption mm-hmm. that people might not be comfortable as comfortable as you, or um, they might be offended, and so just that constantly, like making sure they're okay. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to be better than you. I'm just like I'm just little old me, or you know, there's this kind of. Mm. where it's, we're all just individual people just doing our thing. (laughs) We're just trying to bloody figure it out. (laughs) We're just trying to figure it out. And I think I always saw, and and maybe there still is a bit of that, but there's like a woman that takes herself seriously. There must be such a, she must feel so safe to be able to do that. And I think growing up, it didn't feel safe to take myself seriously. I had to have all these other kind of weird defense mechanisms to kind of Boy me, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes complete sense. I think you do you have to fall back on all these other tropes to to kind of cover it or something until you feel I love that what you said about feeling safe in it, because that's it, right? If you feel safe with people, because I'm I naturally and I think you are the same, someone that laughs a lot <laughs> at everything all the time. And I yeah. love being like that. But I know that's one of my defense mechanisms. Like I do it because I want people to feel happy and it's something I've just done since I was a kid and a little part of me does it because I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable taking myself completely seriously or something. I don't know. It's such a weird... Yeah, well, there's
0: a vulnerability in that as well. There's, I think there's a real vulnerability in um, being sincere. Like I think with sincerity, if you're like, I really just like that person or I I really just want to do this regardless of what anyone else thinks or does. Yeah. There's a real um, vulnerability there because it might not be what everyone else wants to do. It might not be the cool thing. It might be whatever. So if you can just make fun of something first, it's kind of like, I'm above that. Oh, I know that. I know that's silly. Just in case other people think it's silly. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's
0: it's it's. A, I'm not articulating it. Maybe I need more coffee. But I think there's there's, a, there's definitely. Um. Yeah, I think there's there's such vulnerability in being sincere about something, and I think it always really scared me because it's cool to be like laugh at something and make it into a joke or be nonchalant about it or apathetic. Like that's so much safer because you've got all these defences.
1: Yeah, totally. Oh, completely. And I wonder if it's also in our Australian culture particularly that that's something too, you know, that tall poppy syndrome. Have you experienced that in the acting industry or just in your work?
0: (laughs) Yeah, look, it's a, I I mean, I feel like it's so many actors talk about it often. I I think the biggest wake-up call with all of that was spending time in America because tall poppy syndrome does not exist there. It is not a thing and... I didn't realize how deep-seated it was in me and my environment growing up until I was in an environment where no one was self-deprecating or tearing anyone down. And I remember the first time I went to America. I think I was it was like a cab driver, you know someone random person asking me what I did, and I said I was an actor. And they were like, oh, that's great, that's really cool and just was really excited about it. And it was the first time I realised in Australia every time I told people that I felt embarrassed because people would, you know, question and it. be like, oh, well, what else do you do? Oh, really? What have you been on Neighbours? Have you been on Home and Away? And this kind of like instant attack, this kind of tearing you down thing. And, yeah, it was the first time I experienced in America that it really – um It made me so excited. I felt so just accepted for who I was. Yeah, and it's something that the first time I I spent time in America, I really loved. I mean, the country is definitely problematic in all its ways, but that element really had a big impact on me, and I've tried to keep a promise to myself to remain that part of myself in Australia, the uh, uh, American <laughs> Maria that feels yeah, keep keep that part of me, that confident part of me alive. But yeah, it's 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 such a big thing with, with artists, but just everyone. Mm. No one's if someone's confident here they're a a wanker and um arrogant. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And and in other places like I mean America have and I understand that's why people think they're obnoxious often. Because they're not apologetic, but I think there's a really fine balance where you can be not apologetic and be confident and not be a jerk. (laughs) And I I strive for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not to be a jerk. (laughs) Not to be a jerk. That's what I'm waiting for. So I've watched Movement, which is incredible, your web series that I know led to other things. How did, can you explain movement to people who don't know what that's? Thanks,
0: Claire. That's so nice. Um, movement is a web series that I wrote and produced and started I think seven years ago we we made it. it's it's about a young woman who's pretty much a heightened version of myself uh, who is, figuring out life through dance therapy so each episode focuses on a different part of herself that she's trying to better uh, whether it's being open and honest or embracing her sexuality or um, saying no or there's each episode has a different focus and yeah it's very um in each episode the character my character kind of takes it to the extreme and and finds balance within it. Yeah. It was a shot very, uh, we made it on a shoestring, you know, me and friends and um, even my housemates being extras <laughs> and all of that. Um, but it was, it was a really wonderful, fun experience. It was great. It was, it was something that I wrote never expecting it to be made. It was more of an exercise that was inspired by a friend of mine that was already writing and making films and he just encouraged me to. And then... I started writing mainly just so I could, he had a really great swimming pool at the time and he said I couldn't swim in his pool until I was writing stuff. <laughs> but then once I started writing, I, I fell in love with it. And so it became a real passion project. So that's, that's what movement is. And we ended up, um, we shot it all. Uh, on a, yeah, um, on a micro budget with friends, but then we got some Screen stray support to finish it. And that really helped make it into something that wasn't complete trash. And yeah. And then it ended up going to Tribeca Film Festival and, and it screened in New York. And it was one of those really kind of pinch yourself moments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Completely. It's so funny and so well-timed and vulnerable, I think, which is what you talked about before. And I always think If you lead with that vulnerability, you're going to strike a chord because it's people just can relate to it. They see themselves in it. I saw myself in it. What did it lead to once it was shown in New York?
0: It, for a while, nothing. <laughs> I just came back home and I was touring a play and it was out there, but, I, you know, but I was kind of like, well, what happens next? We don't know. And so we were all distracted doing other things. We, I mean, my my friend who produced it and my friend who directed it, and about a year later, the TV producer Im- Imogen Banks from Tangle Offspring Puberty Blues, every every good Australian show, uh, she reached out because she'd seen the web series and she wanted to have coffee. And I didn't really know who she was, which is terrible. So I Googled her just before we had coffee and I was like, oh shit, I should have been more prepared. I just thought she, in my head, I thought, I think she'd mentioned she heard of me through Screen Australia. So I I thought she was from Screen Australia. I didn't read my email properly. Anyway, we had a coffee and a chat and it was lovely, but I didn't really know what it was all about and nothing really came of it. Never heard from her again. And so I thought, oh, I must've just been really weird, the coffee. Um, And then a few months later, (laughs) uh, she, it turns out they'd um, been writing a TV show with me in mind, which was the series Sisters, which is now on Netflix, which yeah, really changed my career. It was mind blowing. And this was all happening without me really knowing she'd seen the show <laughs> and they'd just been writing this, she'd seen movement and then they, her and um, her team were writing a show with me in mind, which is really cool. And, um, I still auditioned for it and I was really nervous, but, uh, yeah, it was great. It was awesome. And after that, yeah, my career's just kind of kept going. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, it's such a great show as well. What goes through your head before you do an audition like that? Like what's your relationship with Inner Critic? Um,
0: that particular audition, I, I was aware they, I think because I, I had backstory, I knew she'd watched the show, I knew that they had me in mind. So there was, it felt more like I just have to show them that I can do these lines and a bit of that. So I felt more confident in a way, but then I'd put a lot of pressure on myself also. But usually with auditions, yeah, my agent said I have some sort of Teflon on me where I guess I've built it up um, to survive where I just, I can't take the knockbacks personally. And I I think that's where it can be really hard as actors because you're constantly going out for jobs, but that's, the thrill of it because next week I could be shooting something in Queensland. I mean, hopefully I want to get out of lockdown. But yeah. but it's like you don't really but but it's it's I love the not knowing of what's coming next. And you know, I could be I could get an email today with a really wonderful script to audition for in it. And so I I love the thrill of it. But in terms of preparing, I just focus on the role and the character in the story because I know the times where I focus on what I look like or, or this person, oh, I'd love to work with this person because they made this show and I've got to impress them and I'm sure they want someone younger for this and all of that stuff, I don't enjoy it and I end up doing a crappy job anyway. So I try and just think about the character and, and enjoy it for myself because, yeah, you never know. And and if you enjoy a scene, usually it's better <laughs> than if you're kind of uh, suffering through it. Uh, <laughs> so I definitely do that. And also I, I've been lucky enough to be in the room for other people auditioning where I've read four auditions and you see I've seen people, you know, throughout a day read the same scene over and over and over and I have learned that no matter the choices you make, you're you and you're always going to do something uniquely you. So just do that. And I think that's been really helpful. And also I've done auditions and not gotten parts and then, you know, months later gotten a part off the back of that audition, if that makes sense. So you're just constantly putting yourself out there. But I'm okay with that. Like it's a lot of work sometimes. You're reading lots of different scripts and I find myself, but this is my excuse for watching a lot of reality TV because <laughs> I'm like I'm in stories all day. I'm reading scripts, you know. <laughs> so it's okay that I just want to watch a bit of trash. That's what I say to my boyfriend <laughs> when he judges me. Yeah,
1: and, yeah. Isn't it interesting? Just how much there's that contradiction at play all the time with because I mean, so much of reality TV is so anti-feminist and so not about stories that you would actually want to be living through or that you believe in and yet also it's so bloody good like I just find that really hard to walk that line sometimes you know that big contradiction
0: I do too Claire it's a real um I have to check myself sometimes and look I know there's certain shows when it gets like I love the the melodrama and just the otherworldliness of some of that stuff but yeah there's definitely been seasons of Real Housewives for example where I'm like this is purely entertainment out of other people's suffering and I yeah I can't I can't enjoy the fact like those times on, on lots of reality shows where you're watching it and someone's really in pain for whatever reason and the camera cameras keep rolling where I'm like that's it I just think about the camera person. I'm like, put the camera down and hug them. Like I think when I'm starting to think about the crew that are there watching it happen, it makes me feel quite sick. So, so I usually um, I usually stick to, I don't even know, this is definitely not a genre, but I'm, I'm going to call it a, like uplifting reality <laughs> where it's like <laughs> – you know, like wholesome, um, yeah, where it's, it's you know, inspirational to an extent or it's people uh, reaching for their dreams. Like I, I love more recent seasons of Drag Race even where it's there's so much like unity and oh, yeah. it's so uplifting and it's beautiful and it's less of that kind of catty, bitchy stuff because I do think that does, it must have such an impact that, that catty, bitchy kind of, Stuff that we watch, like maths, I can't. Oh, I can't um, watch anymore. No. But
1: I love it when it's artistry. So, whether it's like MasterChef or Drag Race, or I don't know, I used to love Australian Idol. I do not care. I don't care. Totally. You know, right? And I don't care about a sob story. I'm not really interested in like the caddy bitch fighting or what. Oh, that's not even a very good feminist term, but you know, like the backstabbing, all of that stuff. Yeah. No, I, I love like, yeah, the, I got really into the glass blowing, show. Yeah. <laughs> competitive glass blowing. And I was like, this is so
0: beautiful. they glowing, glowing gloss for years and finally <laughs> getting the recognition. And it's like, I love, I love that. That's the reality I want to watch. And I'm, I can tell when I'm not in a good place when I'm watching the other kind of reality. It's, it's not, it's just not so it's it's I don't think it's good for anyone. Yeah, and yes, nice. you're right.
1: We're just a ball of contradictions. I think actually, and on that, where is your relationship with body image and the beauty stuff? Because I'm imagining that that's a really kind of minefield in acting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so definitely in my world. But I think just being a woman now, like with social media, just being anyone, honestly, not a woman, any any person with social media uh, that's in the world, I think there's just so much pressure. So I think growing up, I was a bit of a tomboy in some ways, but I think, again, it was more like a safety thing. I, I, I think it was that whole, like, be one of the boys kind of thing to protect yourself a little bit. But I don't even know if tomboy is a term that I want to use anymore. This is so, it's really, yeah, it's not right. But I think I just, I I would shy away from being, embracing my feminine body and, you know, I still find myself wanting to wear loose fitting clothes. And I think that was definitely to do with the world I grew up in, but also I think some, I'm sure, inherited trauma from my, my family of origin, absolutely, of just, women are preyed upon. So you've got to protect yourself. And rather than going down the 80s, glamorous, protecting myself, strong woman route, I went into more of a, I'll just wear baggy clothes and like skateboard kind of route. Um, So I I think it wasn't until my 20s that I really felt comfortable to just feel comfortable in, in my body or show a bit more of my figure in a way. And I think It's funny because now I look back on photos of myself and I'm like, you're so beautiful. Like, you're gorgeous. Why did you think you were like, you know, like, and I just, yeah, and it just makes you think about everyone else in their own little hell there. You know, we all have these ideas of our bodies that are just, yeah, our, our bodies are so amazing. And I'm very privileged and lucky to have, you know, a functioning, healthy body that, I can dance in and do lots of things in, and I and I think that's something that I just try and focus on on gratitude with my body, and not so much on how it looks from the outside. I think it gets easier as you get older, but um, yeah. In terms of being an actress, I mean, there's uh, yeah, I, I have yeah, there's it's it's a bit of a contrast again. There's part of me that intellectually is like, I am woman, hear me raw. I I want to be that woman on TV that people watch and don't feel isolated by. For example, like with Sex and the City that you mentioned earlier, like I loved watching that show when I was younger and there was there was part of me that they all had these bodies that are subscribed to one type of beauty, this kind of skinny, these bodies that were like very toned even though you never really saw them working out as much as a body like that would and all of that stuff. And so I watched those shows but there's still part of me that kind of felt a bit shitty afterwards, and I don't think I could ever about myself or my body and I, I couldn't figure that out. And it wasn't till I watched things like 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 Girls, where I saw Lena Dunham's body. And I was so moved by just seeing like a not a body of a different type, and not not that one type of body on screen. And yeah, she definitely there was tones of self deprecation and all, all of that in the show. But I think we're seeing more and more of different women's bodies in different ways. And so that's kind of how I coach myself. If I, you know, when I've had to do um, scenes in underwear or sex scenes or things where I'm I'm quite, or even just wearing tight fitting costumes on a show where I'm not fully comfortable in. I remind myself that I want to be a body that's just a normal body that will make someone feel okay about the body they're in rather than pining and longing for the body that is on screen. And I think it comes down to that thing of women competing rather than women uniting, if that makes sense. Like I think there's a lot of like we this kind of waiting to be picked by men, or you know, or and so we're competing with each other constantly, rather than yeah, just uniting and, and going out there ourselves. And oh, this is a terrible analogy.
1: <laughs> I'm like, no, it makes total sense. No, yeah, yeah. But
0: so I do that, and I, I'm just like, I want to be a body that people feel good watching, and and even saying that, I'm like, I have like a pretty textbook like. Good body, like it's not like you know, with the with the in terms of like the stupid standards that we live by. But like, I, I have like a you know, whatever. But so it's that. But then I do find myself still like before a shoot, if I'm in my underwear or whatever, I'll find myself thinking about what I'm eating or look in the mirror longer than I usually would, and it's it's so ingrained. So I'm it's it's a real back and forth, and I still struggle with it and. The biggest thing that helps me is when I watch footage of myself, I pretend that I'm watching someone I don't know and I'm so kind to
1: that person. That's such great advice because I do, I think we've internalised so much about what women's bodies should look like by what we see on screen. And I mean, in nine to five, right? Like I worship those three women: Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda. I mean, they're incredible actors and incredible in this film, and so inspirational. And yet, they're all tiny. They've all—they're all, you know, very conventionally, quote unquote, attractive. Yeah. And in, in, in a certain, you know, and very slim. And I think it's that. Yeah, I still don't know where. And I, I've talked to feminists and people from thinkers from all different walks of life and it doesn't matter how old you are we are still kind of in that constant battle about it you know
0: absolutely and when when there is a, a woman on tv or, or a body anybody on tv that has not that conventional like hot bod that we're like still seeing you know used to seeing it's like a, there's kind of a point of it it's like She's being loved despite her body, or she's like, like I adore I do I adore Shrill. Like that show, have you watched Shrill? Yeah. Yes. Like it's a great oh, show. So and yeah. I think it's wonderful that but there's there's still an element where there's a lot of the story is about her and her body. And I'm just I, I maybe I'm just impatient, but I'm like, I just wanna have shows where there's just like no commentary, the way that a character looks is not important. Be secondary. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: How how, Obviously how they dress and present in the world, that's to do with their character. But the things that are out of our control, like our bodies or our features or, you know, the things that we're born with, if we just, yeah, I I just, yeah, I'd love it to just be a a non-issue, but we're not there yet. No way. Um, uh, At all. (laughs) But uh, look, with with absolute reason, but um. And look, I think things are getting better with casting and there's so much more diversity on our screens, but yeah, it is frustrating and it's, it's difficult, but I just want to keep um, championing that in every way that I can. Mm.
1: Cause yeah, it it strikes me as boring to see the same bodies on the same types of women and Traditionally, especially on mainstream Australian TV, white women mm-hmm. with the same types of hair, with the same types of features. And that idea that to get to look like that, you spend your whole life in the gym studying every item of things that you eat. Like, and and obviously if that's a way you want to be in the world also I'm not taking that away from women and saying or men no. and saying you know or any person that you shouldn't do that that's not if that's what gives you joy and makes you feel good about yourself that's not what it is it's just that I'm just bored of the idea <laughs> that women's value is is that, you know? I yeah. just don't think we need to spend our whole lives doing that and like doing bicep curls and figuring out how to do great push ups. You know, I think we have so much more to give and how much more art and leadership and stuff can get out there and get made. There's only so many hours in a day. If we're spending half of it thinking about what we eat and how much we exercise, we're never going to get equal pay, you know? But, that
0: is, no, but I, I, I 100% agree. The energy and the time spent counting calories and all of that junk or just and also the money spent on the maintenance and look I'm a sucker I whatever makes you feel good if I know I love it self-soothing with um ridiculously unnecessary uh face creams and shit and masks I'm like I that's I love doing that and, and that makes me feel good so I'm gonna do that forever but when you when it's something that is not a choice in the matter it is yeah it's it's ridiculous it's even just (laughs) scheduling when you when you get to set there's the call sheet which is like your um your schedule for the day and it's like what time every actor comes in when the crew set up it's it kind of a breakdown of everything that happens in the day great detail and the women always come in earlier because they spend an hour or two in the makeup chair and the men come in much later because they're just kind of given a once over and they're on you go. And I understand that it's just, yeah, it's so like, it's so systemic. It's been going on for so long. It's, it's, it's hard to kind of get out of that, but it is just, yeah, it, it, it's, it's beyond. It's like a lot the, of time. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And a lot of sacrifice and a lot of effort just put into things that it is important, but it's not. It's not as important as um, the story you're telling or whatever you're doing or trying to achieve or you know what what else you can offer. That yeah, it seems to get in the way. So. Yeah.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. I often think about, I think about like, for instance, Julia Gillard when she was prime minister or Julia Bishop has talked about this too, how long they've sat in the makeup chair before, while they're, you know, trying to lead a country but they're sitting in this chair getting their hair and makeup done and that's just so much wasted time. Yeah. You know, and not wasted time because obviously we want to value ourselves and if that makes you feel good, great as well. But as a leader, you've only got so many hours in a day and that's two hours a day that yeah. men aren't spending. Well,
0: that's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. I'm like, I'm getting up. I'm like, I'm in the chair at 6 a.m. <laughs> like, I want to get in at 9. I want to, like, I want to have more sleep. am, yeah, just particularly it's changing – more but then also I'm very lucky to have worked with quite a lot of female directors that kind of are intercepting a lot of that but just like scenes like waking up in the morning if your character's waking up in the morning don't put makeup on me like because I hate watching a tv show and someone wakes up with like hot tongued hair and like lip gloss on I'm like that's not real like and and but it is this this like we're so used to that. Uh, yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. So I think we just need to, um, it's, it's a ridiculous waste of time, but also I think it, it, it has such a massive impact, like seeing all female politicians like you were talking about, always looking so manicured in that way. It just sets this subconscious kind of rule that we all, yeah, to be taken seriously. You have to look really put together and, um, you know, and it's interesting because I'm someone that has, what curly hair. And I'm not, I love wearing makeup. I love dressing up, but I am really comfortable wearing no makeup and not dressing up and posting an unfiltered photo of my social media or whatever. But I feel like because of that, I I do find myself being categorized in the like, she's an everyday woman. She's like, she's always, uh, (laughs) she's, she's really frazzled. She's a hot mess. She's trying to get her life together. And it's like, I just have curly hair that's not neat. That doesn't mean that my life isn't together. Like I can have <laughs> messy hair and and be on top of my shit. Like I, or maybe I can play a character. You can make my hair neat. Like I, I there's this whole. Um, it, it's it's interesting how your how you present or your image has such an impact on um, as as a woman on how people um, expect you to behave or, or see you contributing to the world. It's interesting, but particularly I guess it's more under a magnifying glass as an actor. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's
1: very mm. interesting. It is. I, I'm just struck me. I I finished watching Misrepresented, which is Annabelle Crab's. Oh showing. it looks so good. Yeah, it's so good. And it really struck me in that moment where you're seeing all the male politicians all in their suits and no one's making a judgment call on what they on their character by how they present because they all look the same. Yeah. And for women, whatever we w- present, curly hair, straight hair you know, whatever type of body we have is some kind of indication of our character and what we can do in the world and how useful we are, how whatever, you know, there's kind of a layer of judgment before we walk in the room and do the thing and wouldn't it be great? And like maybe the male politicians need to step up and start showing their personalities, you know, like it's not that everyone should dress the same. you know? But like, why is it that it's okay for men not to put any work in and for us too, you know? I remember once a couple of years ago, we were flicking
0: through the TV and the brown lows were on. I mean, my my boyfriend was watching it and we just got the giggles. Like we lost at laughing so much, but it was kind of heartbreaking. We're like, imagine, just imagine if all the women were just wearing a black dress, the same black dress. And all the men were competing to get attention with like feathers in their hair and all these wild outfits. And everyone was interviewing them on the, on the red carpet, kind of just like chatting to the women about their day and then asking the men about their outfits. And just we're like laughing. Cause we're like, in a way it would just make the men seem so silly or flippant. And then we're like, Whoa, what is that all about? Like this, like it's, it's, just the this kind of that performing kind of peacocky ornamentation that we do as women are expected to do constantly to kind of perform in a way is also considered frivolous and and or it kind of it, it attracts a lack of respect as well in a way like like you you looking at that it's almost like a overcompensating because. We've got nothing to offer, which is absolute bullshit. But there's kind of that no, belief exactly. as well. I don't know. I I don't know if I'm being clear, but like, yeah, looking imagining the men like that, you would kind of instantly it kind of makes the men seem sillier. And I'm like,
1: why is that? Like, it just made
0: me realise that there's this whole other element. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I would love to see that. Mm, completely. Yeah, totally right. Because I think as well for men, there's a, there's an underlying message there too that they might need to be the same. Like they need to be a particular typecast, right? Like tall and bulky and muscly or something. And this is all very you know, um, gendered and and very yes, kind yes. of stereotypes and I think <laughs> we're starting to break this down now. Very binary. Yeah, yeah it's totally yeah, but, binary but yeah. I do think that wouldn't it be great if more from a mainstream cultural perspective on our screens in Australia especially that, you know, men were allowed on the ground low, all the footballers were, you know, asked to wear whatever like incredible outfit they could to show off whatever and be completely out there and women could be too or vice versa however you want to present but this idea that they all should just wear one's type of suit is so boring and sad for men who want to dress up and love clothes and you know Yeah. yeah and have a personality to and hopefully you know we've got Harry Styles and people who are starting to break that kind of stuff down and drag race is an example huge but I do think there's a long way to go
0: yeah it's definitely changing it's definitely changing and it's wonderful that yeah we we definitely have Mm. a very long way to go with it
1: (laughs) (laughs) totally speaking like I want to change tack a bit now so speaking of a long way to go Mm -hmm. I watched nine to five again last night actually for the first time I'd never (gasps) seen it what (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. never seen it i know so just for people who haven't watched it i'll do a little summary so right. it's a 1980 american comedy film directed by colin higgins who wrote the screenplay with patricia resnick and it stars jane fonda lily tomlin and dolly Parton as three working women who live out their fantasies of getting even with and overthrowing the company's autocratic sexist egotistical lying hypocritical bigot boss played by dabney coleman and I think what's really interesting is that it started as a drama by Patricia and then was kind of brought into the comedy sphere. I think Jane Fonda really championed it as, and said it should actually be a broader comedy. One of the other things I really loved about it and I found out it was the second highest grossing film of 1980. Oh,
0: wow. It
1: grossed over $103.9 million as well. And it's the 20th highest grossing comedy film Ever really. And when you think it was made then. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Crazy. What did it mean to you?
0: Kind of what I touched on earlier was I was definitely raised feminist, but it was a little bit confusing because there was a lot of revenge throughout the (laughs) throughout that, (laughs) which I don't think is actually very feminist, but um but this was my favorite movie. I think because I'm one of three sisters, we would definitely play nine to five. It was a great like movie to play pretends of. Um, I was always Judy Burnley, Jane Fonda. Um, so there was that element, but I think I just loved, I grew up watching a lot of, I loved comedy. I'm a big comedy fan. Um, you know, a lot of sitcom comedy and most of that was, the men were the funny people and the women were kind of the witnesses to them being funny or the, you know, just terribly underwritten female characters. And it was the first time that I watched something on TV or a movie that was, the women were funny. Like they were, they were carrying the comedy of the film. So I think that was my biggest thing that had the biggest impact on me because I, I love comedy and always wanted to do comedy and it, it made me feel like I could definitely do that. I think seeing women be, there's a lot of unity in the film where they're not competing, like what I was talking about earlier. They, they find strength with each other and with their friendship and they support each other. I, I think that really meant a lot to me because it just seemed like so much fun.
1: Well, when you and I and Dolly made 9 to 5... Oh, We laughed, we laughed, we did, we laughed so much We
0: found we had so much in common And it's so different Here she is like Hollywood royalty I'm like a tough kid from Detroit She's a southern kid from a poor town in Tennessee And we found we were so in sync as women And uh, we must have, we laughed till uh, We must have added at least a decade Probably Onto our, line, our life span I think We sure crossed our legs a lot <laughs> If you know what I mean well, I feel like I think, I'm having a decade right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the biggest impact. And just the, the women in the film, they make all this change in their workplace. Spoiler alert, but they, they, they kidnap their boss and um, they tie him up and hide him away and they pretend that he's, Still acting as the boss in their workplace, but they make all these changes for the better, and um, the workplace is thriving. Business is thriving, and the employees are really happy. And I, I loved seeing that that they could make really big changes, and in quite an empathetic, female, warm-hearted way. I think mm. that got me, but mainly the comedy. I just loved all the silly comedy of it. I loved, <laughs> I loved all the fantasies where they had the t.Here's this part in the movie where they all fantasise how they would kill their boss and in each of the women's fantasies it's kind of they have their own theme. Like Dolly pants is a, a Western obviously and she like lassoes the boss and, and <laughs> cooks him on a, a campfire and, and in Jane Fonda's character's fantasy she's more like deer hunting him and, and in Lily Tomlin's character's fantasy it's, it's more of a, like, Disney kind of princess poison. I don't know what that is. It's kind of like a Disney cartoon fantasy, but I loved
1: Yeah, there's animation in there as well. Yeah, there is, yeah. I, li- I just loved
0: that element, and, I, and I've always loved dressing up at such a – in terms of, like, an armour. Like, I love dressing up, like, to feel nice, but more as in to change who I am or to empower me or, or just – I guess that's part of being an actor also. A play like,
1: a role, like take on yeah. a role. Yeah, take on a role. And I really
0: saw that in their fantasy scenarios, how like Jane Fonda put on her hat and then all of a sudden she was like cool and strong and I don't know, I, I just, it, yeah, I think that had a really big impact on me too.
1: Mm. It's really wild to me as well that it was made in 1980, but the themes in it, other than the fact that obviously it's very white feminism <laughs> very very white probably not intersectional and oh all very much about uh, that kind of idea of you know white women you know needing help or or whatever and that's their narrative in there so there is, isn't yeah very diverse but uh, putting that aside yeah and and the one
0: the one kind of the one kind of diverse woman who's like not She's still a very white first woman, Maria, who I was like, "Gosh, she has my name." And yeah. She like gets fired and has this like really bleak. Kind oh. of, she's kind of the most victimized of all. It, it's anyway, but yes, that that's that that could be tweaked for sure. Yeah.
1: Correct, yeah. yeah. But putting that aside, other than that, the themes in it feel so current. Yeah. Even the stuff that they do in their workplace is incredible. I mean, they all have a backstory of being women that need to work due to circumstance. So, Lily Tomlin's character is a widow with four kids, you know, and Jane Fonda's character's husband's left her for her secretary. Mm -hmm. And then you get the feeling that Dolly's character doesn't have a lot of money. Her husband, I think, might be like a musician or something. And so she's struggling and really needs this job. And because of that, They're kind of trapped into having to put up with a whole lot of crap, not enough pay, being sexually harassed in the workplace. And that's, you know, something that women can still talk about today in different industries. What I really loved too was the suggestions they put up for workplaces which still aren't there today. But things like childcare, it's oh better, God. you know. Childcare in the workplace, equal pay, part-time work and shared work, which is still something that women, you know, have to battle with trying to balance families, not getting promotions because the man is seen as the provider and, mm. you know, you need to give it the job to a man because the, you know, customers prefer to deal with the man or, you know, or getting promoted, like men getting promoted above you even though you're the one that's been working there for longer and are more capable. I think Lily Tomlin's character handles that whole Mm. kind of storyline of her boss being this idiot and misogynist that she trained but who's just been promoted because he's a boy's boy and a bloke and then also takes on her ideas. And I know that's that's something that has happened to me and has happened to so many women I talk to that they'll have a great idea but it's not until the man puts it forward that then it gets carried
0: through. yeah I've definitely experienced that and also the woman kind of like the woman's kind of behind the curtain doing all the hard work sweating you know and kind of <laughs> juggling all of this stuff and the guy's just out the front being like Ta-da! you know <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's such a it's still a, it's still a thing it's, it's still a cliche right yeah, yeah it's still a thing and it's yeah. it's, it's, it's exhausting yeah and it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's changing definitely, I think, with, I mean, younger generations, but it's still, it's so like, yeah, the movie was made a long time ago, but it's not that old. And it's it's only like a generation before, you know, it's so still such a huge part of our culture and it's, yeah, we're making changes, but it's when it's something so systemic that's been going on for so long, that's so deeply ingrained, it's such slow Progress to change, so yeah, of course, it's still relevant. Like, and it's mm. I've when I've watched it as an adult, the film, it's it's yeah, it's amazing. Like, it's still there. There's I'm still like, yeah, I get it. And you know, sometimes when you watch older movies now, you're like, oh god, like, <laughs> but this still, I mean, this, yeah, definitely, it's really problematic, yeah, it's yes. still, still problematic in a way, but there's there's a lot that's still, yeah, so relevant. and. And it's interesting, a lot of it growing up I think went over my head But a lot of it, I'm like, oh, that did sink in and make an impact um, watching that when I was younger.
1: Yeah. Completely. I was sort of interested after I finished watching it because I know it really resonated. And I thought, what are things like now for women in 2021? So I have some statistics for you if you're interested. Yeah, I'm ready. Which are kind of depressing. So we'll talk about some fun (laughs) stuff after it because it's really depressing. So this is taken from the Australian government website. So... At the moment, the full-time average weekly earnings for women in Australia are 13.4% less than for men. That's in 2021. The one that I thought was really dangerous and that we know about is a real problem is the superannuation balances for women at retirement are 21.6% lower than those for men. Oh, And on the flip side of it, the median undergraduate starting salaries for women are 2.5 percent less than for men. So that's just—it's not just like, oh, well, they have kids, and that's why they're working less. When they start out, their salaries are less, and the gap widens.
0: That's like that. Yeah, that's like the 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 from the bottom, the foundations are imbalanced. Like,
1: yeah, exactly. The gap widens to 13 percent for postgraduates as well. So if they've had further study. But weirdly, more women are finishing high school with a Year 12 qualification, so it's 92.5% of women um, versus 87% for men, and we also have higher achievement in terms of degree level as well. So it's 48% have a bachelor degree versus 36% of men have a bachelor degree, and yet when we get to be employed as an undergraduate, after we've finished working, our salaries are less already. And then it just goes down and down from there.
0: <sighs> I just, I'm just like.
1: So depressing. Come on. Like it's
0: 2020. Like why? Like I'm just, I don't, I don't warrant it, but I understand in the past things have been really cooked and wrong and confusing and, but like now, we've like we're here now. We we've read the things. We know the things. We watch. Like, why is this still a thing? It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, and just infuriating. Mm.
1: It really is. I mean, when you start looking at the statistics around CEOs and women in leadership, it gets really scary. So. <laughs> Here we go for some more depressing stats and then we'll finish with some fun Dolly Parton no, things, no, no. I promise. No, it's, it's, you need to hear this. Yeah. So, but I just did find this. So this is from, from the 2020 data set. Women hold 14.6% of chair positions and 28% of directorships and only 18% of CEOs are women. So when you think about that, the flip side of that is that like over 80% of men are the CEOs. And so I wonder also what happens when you're the outlier woman on those chair boards, you know. We're talking about positions where the decisions are being made, where people are, you know, moving society forward, the culture forward. And then a lot of this means that you might only have a couple of women in the room. And what is it like for them? Oh, God. And it's so infuriating. And also that means that we're not, no wonder we're not necessarily getting equal pay or we're getting workplaces that serve us if you don't have a diversity at that top level making decisions, right? Like that needs to change in order for us to get better conditions. And I don't think that men are going to give it to us. I think we have to go out there and just fight for it, right? And not just talk about it, like go and do it. Yeah.
0: Which is frustrating because I'm like, it's it's not the the labor of just getting equality is like put onto the women, which is frustrating because we're already, yeah, at an imbalance and and not getting paid enough to be doing all of that extra labor and fighting and pushing up against all resistance and I have to represent all women because I'm the only woman in this, you know, area and all of like, that's, that's really taxing energetically. Like that's exhausting. Mm. Yeah. But I guess (laughs) no one else. Look, there are some men out there and some other people out there that are definitely um, doing great stuff, but it's the majority of it lies in our hands. Women. To, to find that equality. And it's-
1: yeah, I think what could be interesting, and now that I've said that, that it's all up to us, I guess it's it's not, but it in that it actually is proven that when there are more gender balance, more diversity in general, people from different cultural backgrounds as well, people of colour, and it's more evenly spread within a team, in a company or whatever setting, oh, the 100%. outcomes actually improve. So statistically and in terms of... In from a business perspective, if we're purely looking at money and how much money a company can make, having a more diverse team and more women there and more people of color actually is a good thing from a business sense.
0: Absolutely, and, and look, I, I can't speak from a statistically informed point of view, but I um, just from my own experience and, and not even in the corporate world, obviously, um, but in a creative perspective the more diversity in problem solving in a workplace, the better. Like it's it's just, there's so much, there's less, and I'm not, I don't want to like hate on, it's not men. It's just that kind of patriarchal way of looking at things where it's very competitive and it's that a bit pissing contest, um, very ego driven. Like I don't want to look like I don't know. So I'm just going to be really kind of, you know, balls to the walls. I never have said that in my life now I'm saying it on a podcast, but but that kind of, um, that that where everything's a battle rather than problem solving. It's like this, it becomes, and I feel like that's a very kind of patriarchal old way of looking at things where when I've been in environments where it is diverse and there's people from all different perspectives, working on something to solve it together, you get so much more done. There's no time wasted on egos or or, or dancing around people's sensitive egos or, you know, it, it's just, it's you get more done and it's way, yeah, you're not focusing on the problem, you're focusing on solutions. And I think, I don't want to say that's all because of the patriarchy, but it is something I see more in male I'm saying that in quotations but like male kind of run environments where it is there's just I feel like there's a lot of focus on yeah ego and 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 any and the way things should be rather yeah and bravado and just kind of a set way rather than actually looking at what what you're working with and and looking at it from that way like just from thinking particularly with filmmaking you know there's sometimes it's you you get off track because you're thinking about other stuff and it's like hold on what what's the story about what are we actually trying to say doesn't matter who's doing what and who came up with that idea or, or or who's who's the in charge of this moment it's it's what's best for the film or for the show or the story we're telling and that that should be the focus, and I think when you have more diversity, it, it seems to nurture that that perspective better. In my experience,
1: yeah, in mine too, absolutely. And I think it goes both ways because I worked in a, in primary school teaching, which is yeah. predominantly women, <laughs> and I think when there is more even gender balance, it just seemed in our teams just worked better because they had we were teaching boys and girls. And having male teachers there did give us a different perspective as well and and was really valuable. And so, yeah, just the more diversity you can get, the better. And so just to finish off on my little stats adventure, (laughs) exactly what we were talking about, the first thing that comes to mind with um, making a difference statistically and in the research has shown that collaboration and encouraging collaboration is what helps and building empathy is also what helps which is, I guess, what we're doing now is trying to get people to listen to a different perspective from their own and understand what's going on in people's heads and how that impacts things. And so, yeah, building that empathy, elevating female voices really helps. So when you're in a room, if a woman is speaking, you say, oh, I haven't heard from Maria. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Maria. Tell us more. You know, not talking over her, seeking support from other women, so banding together. Providing equal opportunities. So if you are in a position of leadership, really examining your own bias and yeah. not hiring just someone that seems exactly like you necessarily. So trying to provide more equal opportunities. And then mentoring and developing female leadership. So they all make me feel yeah. a bit better. Yeah, yeah. and that's,
0: that's beautiful. That's you what know? we should all be doing, particularly the um, the mentoring mm-hmm. and, and yeah. bringing other people up. I think... That's kind of similar to what you we were talking about with the tall poppy syndrome thing of like, I think, I mean, it's, it's different because it's not gendered, but just that, yeah, that element of it. We learn so much from bringing other people up and, and sharing our experience and, and it just bringing new perspective and being humbled by that as well There's you know, there's something really beautiful in that, totally. like being like, yeah, I actually I, I don't yeah. know how to TikTok can you show me? That's a terrible example, but but just uh, but you know, um, just getting fresh perspective and, and and accepting that you don't know everything
1: is yeah mm, is a huge thing. Completely. So as promised, after our last stats, I had a little bit more dolly <laughs> part and fun. So do you know much about <laughs> 9 to 5, the, song, the theme song she wrote? Mm, yes,
0: I think so. I don't know. If you're going to quiz me on it, we'll see. <laughs> no, no. no. Yeah. no, no. I, I, but I know the song. I've listened to the song a lot. Yes, cool, excellent. Yes. was like, okay. it
1: was, It's not a quiz, but I just thought I had some really great statistics about it. Did you know that Dolly Parton only agreed to do the film if she could write the theme song?
0: Did not know that. Love that. That's very cool.
1: Isn't that cool? And it ended up being the only awards that the show got, the movie got, even though it did so well, were for Dolly Parton as the country singer. Yeah, and also for the song. So they were the only two awards that they got. Yeah, Best Female Country Vocalist and Best Country Song, even though that was nominated for a whole lot of other things that uh, just got Grammy Awards. That's bonkers. Which is crazy when mm. you think how incredible it was. Yeah, I know, exactly, and it really launched her career. So I thought, I mean, it's such a bloody good song, isn't it? Uh, so you know that opening bit, that tick 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 that sound?
0: That is her acrylic nails going tick
1: tick and they sounded like a uh, like a typewriter to me, you know. Like in the mornings, I get up, I tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, and different things on the set, like working nine to five. What a way to make a living! <gasps> <gasps> so good.
0: Oh, it's so good. I guess because yeah. she, she apparently, when she was writing the song, she was in her trailer when she was writing it. Apparently, um, and she was like, she didn't have an instrument with her, so that was like her. Nail, acrylic nail. Way I don't know. of doing it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then they kept it in. It's so cool. Yeah, five going on. Oh god, <laughs> yeah.
1: she's just such a hero, Dolly. The older I get, the more I love Dolly Parton. I just think, oh, so I mean, even she's saving us with the vaccines, doing all kinds of incredible things. What a woman! What a woman! Seriously, my also my other favorite part in the movie was Dolly Parton's monologue. When she's like hog tying her boss, basically. And she, that line where she's like, if you say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. And don't think I can't do it. Oh, my God. Terrible no, going. No, I've, I've, <laughs> I've repeated that many times. Not that I have a gun or I've
0: ever done that to a man. But it's that, that rooster to a hen in one shot. It's so
1: good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it it's just it's so good just uh, the comic the comic timing Genius. is just amazing thank you so much Ria. <laughs> I've just loved this despite all of the tech issues you've had and everything <laughs> Thanks, I've really Claire. so enjoyed our conversation <laughs> it's been so good so final thing what advice would you give to women in your industry coming up now what advice would you give them
0: just figure out who you are or what you care about or what is uniquely you and just take care of that I think rather than trying to be things that you think people want you to be if that makes sense yeah just figure out what is you and
1: take care of it Mm, that's good and it and it sounds simple doesn't it but it's actually really hard
0: part of me was going to say I feel like younger an 18 year old probably could give advice to me like (laughs) brain when I was like, you know, I think they've grown up in a much more kind of like <laughs> <laughs> balanced <laughs> environment. Maybe they would, you know, but anyway, look, we can swap. We can swap some advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. They know so much more than I do. I know. I think my role models were the Little Mermaid. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You know, okay. I don't have a very. kind of advice, <laughs> sorry. I'm you know? sorry. <laughs> Oh, fire Oh, God, I know. Well, it was just so lovely to meet you and get stuck. Hopefully, you can sort like meet in person one day that, that you're lovely. in Melbourne. It'd be yeah. to catch up and get a coffee or something without a lag time. Oh,
0: my goodness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good.
1: You've been listening to a podcast with me, Claire Tonty, and this week with the wonderful Maria Angelico. For more from Maria, you can go to her Instagram at Maria Gloria Grace Angelico or watch her in Sisters on Netflix or the incredible Australian drama Stateless on the ABC. And if you want to hear more from me, you can go to at Claire on Instagram where I like to tell stories or just follow and subscribe to this podcast. I would love that. I also have a website, ClaireTonti.com, where all my writing, my newsletter subscription is, as well as all the podcasts, including Suggestible, which I do every Thursday with my husband and James. And you can also leave us a review straight in app if you'd like to, just like something else at Indie SRS has. Listening to Taunts and what a great conversation between Claire Tonti and Zaynab Johnson. Amazing. Thank you so much, mate. And you can do the same and I'll read your review out on the show just by heading on over to the app and giving us a rating. It really helps this show to be discovered And if you've got time and you thought this episode might be something someone else would enjoy, I would so love you to share it with them. It just really, really helps get the show discovered. And I also think if you love something in a podcast, it's one of my favourite things to send it to someone else because it's a little bit like sending them a really good book or something, except it takes five minutes on your phone. Anyway, that's it from me this week. Thank you as always to Raw Collings for editing this week's episode and I'll talk to you soon.